one failure. Especially if you want to continue to present a good king, a faithful king, to encourage his readers, why would he mention this one at the very end? And I think we're going to look at two reasons. First, we'll, we'll look at uh, a theological one, and, and next, we'll look at a personal one. But the theological ones today, next week, we'll look at the more personal. Last week, we saw what disobedience is, uh, what David's disobedience was, and what obedience really ought to be. Today, I want us to look at, as we look at the reasons for why Chronicle writes the way it does, I want us to look at another set of twos, uh, judgment and mercy, okay? So we saw obedience and disobedience last week. Today, we're going to see what judgment and mercy really is. So let's talk about judgment, because that's what we see here. God judges Israel and David for the sin that he committed. He judges them, right? Now, thing about judgment is this. I need to do a, a separate sermon on judging because I think there are people here and not just here but everywhere that struggle with judging, that struggle with a critical spirit, okay? And I think we need to look at that later. But here, we don't necessarily like talking about judgment, do we? Uh, we don't like judgmental people necessarily. We often say to one another, hey, don't judge me, right? Uh, or why are you so judgmental? We don't necessarily like judgmental uh, people. We have this attitude, uh, let's let live and, and live and let live, right? We can quote the scripture. Don't you know Jesus said in Matthew 7, don't judge or you'll be judged. And yet the irony is this. I don't think there is any other creature on earth that is more judgmental than human beings. And when you read our chapter here, in fact, when you read all over the Bible, it's God. God is the one who seems to be judging all the time. He seems to be judging all the time. Doesn't that sound a little bit unfair? Doesn't that sound a little bit hypocritical? You tell me not to judge, and yet you judge all the time throughout the Bible. It's a little weird, isn't it? And if you want to resolve that problem, the question is, the answer is this. The difference is in the judging. There's another word that you could use for judging, okay? And that's the word discernment. In other words, not all judging is bad. And oftentimes when you hear the word judging, you think it's all bad. But there's a different word for it. There's another word we can say is, it's called discernment. And we do this all the time. When you interact with other people, you've got to constantly interpret, uh, evaluate, form opinions regarding their qualities, their words, and their actions so that you could respond appropriately. So you're, in that sense, you're discerning what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're thinking. You need to decide, for example, if the seller is being honest about its quality uh, and value of its product. You need to judge that. When someone is running for an office and they're nominated for an office, you need to evaluate uh, his qualifications. You need to, in that sense, discern this, judge that, right? And so there is a judging that we all do that is, in a sense, normal and it's a necessary part of life. But there's also a wrong way to judge, a wrong way. And Scripture warns us that we have this natural tendency to judge others in the wrong way. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, says this in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. He says, quote, uh, bad judgment is a disposition to think evil of others or to judge evil in them, end quote. To think evil of others or to judge evil in them. And so this bad judgment is this, our, our natural inclination to ignore our own faults and to make critical judgments of others. And Jesus is not forbidding critical thinking uh, in the positive sense, which means you evaluate people's words and actions carefully so you can know what's good and what's bad and what's right and wrong. 
but he's warning us of this inclination to ignore our own faults and to make critical judgments of others, right? He's warning us about our inclination to make critical judgments in the negative sense, which involves looking for others' faults without valid or sufficient reason, forming unfavorable opinions of others' qualities or words or actions or even motives. In the simplest terms, bad judging means you simply look for the worst in other people. That's what you're doing when you judge, okay? Let me give you an example. You know, you just found out somebody gossiped about you. I can't believe that person said that about me. I can't believe she gossiped or he gossiped about me, right? And now everything, every time you see this person, even though you've never talked to the person, even though you've never heard, you know, anything directly from the person because it was secondhand, Every time you see this person, all you see is gossip. All you see is this person who is a gossip. You've reduced this person who is much more complicated than you think into one issue. She or he gossips. But then when someone calls you out and says, hey, I heard you said something about me. Then all of a sudden, we make all these different excuses. Oh, no, I wasn't just gossiping. It was out of concern. I was asking for advice for someone who was struggling. Right? And we make the best possible excuses to put ourselves in the best possible light uh, so that we don't seem like we've done anything wrong. That's what judging does. But here's the real issue of why it's wrong and why the Bible says this kind of judging is wrong. When you set yourself up to judge critically the qualities, the words, the actions, even the motives, even the intentions and what they're thinking, though you've never really asked them, you are not just the judge, but you are the jury and you are the executioner all in one. And what you are doing is this. You are doing nothing less than playing God. Only God knows what people are really thinking. Only God can be accurate about people's intentions. And only God can judge and execute in the proper way. And that's why it was wrong. God's judgment is always about justice. It's about justice. Right? And we care and we should care about justice. But the problem is our judgments, negatively speaking, tend to only care about our own sense of justice. And oftentimes that's apart from what God thinks. So yes, God does judge. But God is God because he is holy. And he's the only one in the position to actually play that role. And you are not. And yet his judgment is not vindictive. There's no axe to grind. It's a matter of justice. This is wrong and this is right. And he wants to address that as a holy God. And so here in our passage and all throughout the first Chronicles, Jesus or God is teaching us that he's holy. That God, that even God can't just forgive sin and let it go. There must be justice somewhere. So David sins, and God is addressing the wrong. And he gives David three choices. Three years of famine, right? Three months of invasions, or three days of plague. Now, what a choice is that, right? It's a horrible uh, situation to be in. But as horrible as that sounds, I want you to notice this, okay? Last week we saw this. Part of David's sin was that he was counting not just people, but his army. He was estimating the value of his military power. He was relying on his army. God says no. And so these three choices, whatever he chooses, I want you to notice this, whatever form of judgment David chooses, David's dreams of becoming a dominant world military power and kingdom, God takes that away from him. You choose 
famine, then your wealth is wiped out. You've got to import from other countries. You become dependent on others. You can't do it anymore. It becomes a second option. The military is conquest. Then you're dependent. You're taking people by the knees. And then the third option is slaves. What happens? Slaves get killed. And we're told in verse 14, 70,000 people die. But the real translation is this. It's 70,000 men. Men. What happens? You lose your army. You lose 70,000 men. So whatever the choice David makes, in the end, God is taking away Israel's desire to be a nation of economic and military power. He humbles Israel in his judgment. And David chooses the third. And I want you to notice what David says in these verses. In verse 13, he says to the prophet Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord and not in the hands of men. This is what David says. And so he chooses the third. He says, I want to place myself in the hands of the Lord, not in men, because I trust God more than I trust men. But why does he choose God? Because he says in that verse, he says this, because his mercies are very great. Because his mercies are very great. So all along, we've been taught that God is a holy God and he judges. But here, David also believes that God is a merciful God. And not just a little bit merciful, but greatly, greatly merciful. He's holy, but he's also merciful. In other words, David's view of God is a little bit more sophisticated than most people out there. Because many people, when you think about God, tend to have a one-dimensional picture of God. And on the one hand, you have God, and he's always angry, the wrath of God, always looking for people to judge, always ready to call out the wrongs, and loves to punish, right? He loves to judge. And to be honest, we don't like that, nor do we want that. But the other view that people oftentimes have is this, God is love. He's merciful and gracious all the time to everyone because he loves everyone and he has to include everyone and accept everyone and have mercy on everyone no matter what they did, no matter who they did it to because he's so loving. And at first that sounds pretty nice, pretty loving, but it really isn't. That's like saying, you know, if you have a friend who's a drug addict and he says, you know, I'm a drug addict, you know, can you help me? It's okay. I accept you. I know you're a drug addict. We're not perfect. And you say, hey, just come over for a barbecue. It sounds loving, but you haven't addressed the problem. You haven't addressed the problem. You haven't talked about it. You haven't faced the truth. He's a drug addict, and he needs to be faced with the truth. And so that's not really loving. You might be accepting, but it's not really loving, and you don't really want that kind of God either. You don't want that kind of God. Not when you've been wronged. Not in a world full of injustice. You want judgment. You want wrongs to be addressed. You want things to be made right. And so that picture of God just doesn't work. It's too simplistic. So on the one hand, people want to believe in a God that says, well, you love to judge. And if you love to judge, you've got very little mercy or grace. But on the other hand, if you have a God who's just all about love, mercy, and acceptance, you overlook real injustice. You never address the truth. And that's not really loving or merciful, is it? So David won't have that. David won't have that. Even though he's being judged by a holy God, in that judgment, he still proclaims his mercies are great. His mercies are great. He's both. He's both. He's holy and he's merciful. He judges, but he shows mercy. 
In fact, it can't be any other way. They go hand in hand. That's what mercy and judgment are. C.S. Lewis says this, quote, Mercy, detached from justice, grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox. As there are plants that will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Mercy and judgment go hand in hand. Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. Grace is God's blessing to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. But mercy is deliverance from judgment. And so real mercy doesn't ignore justice. It doesn't ignore the wrong, acts like it never happened or doesn't exist. On the contrary, real mercy is a recognition of real wrong. In the face of real injustice, in the acknowledgement of real sin, that is the only time that real mercy can be experienced. Judgment and mercy, holy judgment, godly mercy go hand in hand. And that's the picture of God here. He's not this angry God here with an axe to grind, but neither is he this sweet old man ready to accept everyone and everything, but he's holy and he's merciful. And I think David understands this. He's counting on this. Yes, he's holy. He's so holy that he can't even look upon one sin, but he's full of mercy. He's full of mercy and compassion. And so David confesses his sin. He acknowledges his wrong. He throws himself on God's mercy. God is holy, but he's merciful. He knows he's going to get it, right? He knows he deserves it, but he trusts God to pull back. He trusts God that he still has a desire to love and to save. And that's why he says in verse 17, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but do not let the plague continue on your people. He cries out for his mercy. And you notice in verse 15, even before David cries out, God's already ready to show it. God's ready to show it. It says in verse 15 that God sent this angel to destroy Jerusalem, but as soon as he's about to do it, the Lord saw, and he relented. He pulled back from his calamity. When the Lord saw, that, Lord, that seeing is a sense of grief. It's associated with tears, and he pulls back. He's ready to show mercy even before David asks. And so the Lord commands the angel to put back the sword in its sheath, and he shows David and Israel mercy. He doesn't destroy them all. He's not just holy, but he's also merciful. Now, judgment and mercy go together. Why is that important here in this passage? And here's why geography is important. Here's why geography is important. Now, follow me here, okay? Why is this story about David here at the very end of David's life? What does David do in response to God's mercy? At the end of verse 18 and the rest, he worships. He builds an altar. He makes sacrifice to atone for his sins, and he prays. Right there, in that place where we're told the plague ended. In that same place, holiness and mercy, in that same place, David builds an altar and he worships. Now, why is that important? Because the chronicler mentions something that 2 Samuel doesn't, and that is that the place where the spread of the plague stopped was going to be the place where the temple of Solomon was going to be built. 
This is the remarkable ending with its clear account of moral failure in David's life where he gets judgment and yet he receives mercy in that place. That place where he is becomes to the community a place where the community needs to turn to for sacrifice, for forgiveness, and for answered prayer. That place becomes important because it becomes a place of mercy and forgiveness. And so you read the rest of 1 Chronicles, and David's just preparing for the building. It doesn't actually start till 2 Chronicles, where Solomon comes onto the scene, and he builds it. But it's in that place. Now, why is that important? Read 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he says. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So you know that place where David received mercy? Now we know what it is called. Mount Moriah. The place where David receives mercy the place where the Solomon's temple was being built. Now, what's important about that? Genesis chapter 22. Okay, follow me. That's the place where Abraham took his son Isaac and God told him to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And yet, God spares Isaac. It's the same place now. Hundreds of years later, David throws himself on the mercy of God he was under judgment, and he receives mercy. Him and all Israel are spared. He builds an altar. He makes sacrifices and prayers in that place, in Moriah, where Abraham and Isaac were. In that place, Solomon now begins to build a temple. And now you have this temple here for years and years after. Continue to build altar, continue to sacrifice, continue to pray. And the thing is, when you read Hebrews, Hebrews says that all those sacrifices in that temple, all the sacrifices that David made weren't really effective. But they, in fact, all the sacrifices that they made looked forward to another sacrifice, a better sacrifice. And here's what I want you to understand. In Mount Moriah, there was a lot of mountains there. Jerusalem was a part of that. But one of the mountains, scholars say, is a mountain called Golgotha. Golgotha. Remember Golgotha? The place of the skull. That's where Jesus was crucified. You see, down the road, thousands of years down the road, in that same city, in that same region of Moriah, where Abraham and Isaac were sacrificing, where David and sacrificed, where Solomon and Temple were making sacrifice, in that same place, we see God's judgment and mercy at the same time, but this time, God's judgment came upon his own son. His son to pay for the sins committed. So though David was spared and Isaac was spared and Israel was spared, Jesus wasn't. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't spare him in that place on that cross. God did not spare his only son. And this is why David's failure is mentioned at the very end. Because David's failure looks forward to Jesus' success. David, although a good king, looks forward to a better king. David in our passage cries out, I'm the one. I did the wrong. These are sheep. I'm the shepherd. They're the sheep. Spare the sheep. Let the judgment fall on me. And David was right. Someone had to pay so that they could live. But God says to David, you're not the one. You're not the one. 
Jesus, the great shepherd, said this. Strike me so that the sheep can go free, Isaiah 53. Jesus is the great king. Strike me so that the subjects can go free. The shepherd is struck so that the sheep go free. On that cross, he bore the full judgment of God so that you and I could receive mercy. Judgment and mercy in that same place. And now you know, now you know why you are told not to judge others, at least in the negative sense, to not play God. Because on the cross, in that place, Jesus, our shepherd and our king, has taken our judgment so that we could go free. Judgment for Jesus, but mercy for us. Mercy for us. Now consider this. Where do you go today? What place do you turn to when you need mercy, when you need grace? And the answer is, the place you go is wherever you are. Because wherever you are, your Savior, Jesus Christ, who is your perfect sacrifice, who is your great high priest, is with you wherever you go. The place of forgiveness and mercy has now become synonymous with the person. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to make sacrifices at a temple. But you trust in Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd who said, strike the shepherd, judgment, so that my sheep are spared mercy. This is your identity now. This is who you are. You are someone who has received great mercy. You are someone who has been spared. You are now called a people of mercy. And what do people of mercy do? They don't judge. But like their Savior, they are merciful. They are merciful. So be merciful. Be merciful. Consider the cross. For not just your judgment, but the judgment of those who have wronged you have been borne. You be merciful. Let's pray.